Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. You might wonder, you know, why would we have Zach read that whole text? You know, it was necessary, Blake, for him to, wow, I am, I haven't even started yelling yet and I'm loud. So let's, there we go. Much better. You might wonder, uh, you know, why we would, we would read all of that scripture. And uh, as Christians, it's important for us to be able to set through the hearing of God's word. In fact, one of the problems in our society is that we are, we are always wanting to be entertained. You know, it's like TikTok is now the, the new social media. And literally what it is, is like a seven second video. Our attention span is so short now. And uh, as the people of God, what you got to understand is our power is not found in the words that I say. Uh, our power is found in the word of God. And so we have to be a people who discipline ourselves in this world of distraction to focus in and to hear what God has to say to us. And we see a lot in Nehemiah chapter 2. We're continuing the series in Nehemiah. And so far I've uh, worked at the speed of a turtle. Uh, it took us three weeks to get through chapter 1. So I promised you last week I'd speed it up. And, and I'm trying to do that this week. I'm not guaranteeing that we'll get through the, the whole chapter. But I'm going to try to cover all of chapter 2 today. And what we've been seeing in Nehemiah is who God is. See, the, the book of Nehemiah is not about Nehemiah. It's primarily about God. It's us learning about who God says he is. And that's really good news for us, not because we're good, but because God is good. So in week one, we saw that we have a God who cares. He loves us. In week two, we saw we have a God who intercedes on our behalf. And last week, which was my favorite message of the series, not because I preached it, but because of how good God is, is we serve the God who works. Our job as Christians is not to work, praise God. Our God is to wait on the God who works for us. And now as we come into chapter two, we see that we have the God who sins. He is the God who sends leaders to his people, and he sends his people through his leaders. Now, this is exactly what we see in Nehemiah chapter 2. It's two different parts. It really could be two different sermons. You might, by the end of this, say, Blake, that should have been two different sermons, but I'm going to try it anyways. Uh, The first part, verses 1 through 9, is we see God sends Nehemiah for the good of his people. And then we're going to jump over to the New Testament, and we're going to see how that points forward to Jesus. Because that's all Nehemiah is, is he is a shadow of Jesus who is to come. Nehemiah does not represent you and he does not represent me. I'm not that good. I'm not the star of the story. It's Jesus. So we're going to look at how it represents Jesus. And then at the end of Nehemiah 9 through 20, we see how Nehemiah sends the people of God. God uses Nehemiah to rally up the Israelites. And we see our part in Nehemiah. So if we're looking at Nehemiah, and this is how I think you should read the Bible, and you're like, where's Jesus and where am I? Uh, We are not Nehemiah. We are the Israelites. And we get one verse. uh, And it's taken us this long to even get to our one verse. And that is something that is really important for us to understand. That when we read the Bible, it is not about us. We are not the point of what God is doing. We are just a part of what God is doing. And that's really good news. If it was a movie... You and I would not be the star of the movie. We would be kind of like the background guy, you know, like when when the star goes to the restaurant and there's somebody in the background for like three seconds. That's you and I, which I've always found kind of funny. Like the actors are like getting their big moment on TV and it's like, I got to smile so good in the background that they'll hire me for a better role. Well, that's us though. We were so insignificant. And yet that is so good because God blesses us through what he's done through Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump into this text. Father God, thank you so much. That you have sent us through Jesus. And Lord, thank you for the good news that what you've sent us to do, you have equipped us for. Uh, God, we as parents have the command to raise our children in the way of the Lord. And if we're on our own without your equipping, that seems a little overwhelming. 
So I'm grateful that if you've sent us children, you, you're there to equip us to raise them. God, you've sent us into our places of work. You've sent us into all of the things that we do with our life. You've sent us the money that we have. And so, God, we're just so grateful that you are the one who equips us to do what you have called us to do with it. And we're grateful that you've sent Jesus, our leader, the one who ultimately sends us with the power that we need to accomplish all that you've called us to accomplish as a church and as individuals. God, it is in your name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So we're just going to walk through this text pretty much verse by verse. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you don't, you can look at one of the Bibles I have for you. So we jump into chapter 2, verse 1. We see first and foremost in this first part that Nehemiah serves the people of God at the risk of his own life. He serves the people of God at the risk of his own life. It says, during the month of Nisan, which comes right after the month of Toyota, of course. <laughs> I don't even know if you're supposed to pronounce it Nisan, but I like it better that way. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Remember, Nehemiah's job is for the most powerful man in the world to try his wine and make sure that the king doesn't get poisoned. It's a really big job, and he's with the king all of the time because of it. It says, I had never been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now, the month of Nisan actually is important to understand this because we find out that Nisan is three months after Nehemiah originally got called by God to go back and build the wall for the Israelites. He's been burdened, praying and fasting for three months. Now, it only takes him 52 days to actually do the mission, but it's been three months. God said, hey, I want you to do this. He laid this burden on his heart and then God went silent. You guys ever been there? It's like, God, what, what in the world do you want me to do? And this is where Nis- or Nisan, this is where Nehemiah is as we come into the month of Nisan. And what happens to Nehemiah happens to all of us. Eventually, our emotions boil to the surface. Have you ever been mad at somebody or kind of sad and you've tried to hold it in? You try to pretend like everything's okay? Some of us are better than others of us, you know? Some of you, it's me, I, like when I'm mad at you, you know I'm mad at you because it just goes to my face, you know, immediately. But some of you are very stoic and you could be mad at me for months and I won't know it. But what always happens is eventually it comes to the surface. And this really isn't a part of the sermon, but it's true that whatever we try to hold in, we will either implode or explode with. We'll implode, we'll self-destruct. You know, the emotions have to come out. So it's, it's going to be sex, drugs, or rock and roll, so to speak. Or we explode on other people. You know, have you ever like, found yourself snapping on somebody and you're like, wait a minute, I'm not even really mad at them. I'm just mad at what's going on in my life. And this is why it's really important that we are in small groups, which is what we're signing up for right now. You can go to ascentchurch.org and sign up or put it on your Connect card and sign up for a small group. You need a place where you can get these emotions out. You need people of God to walk with. If you isolate, you will either implode or explode. But that's not the point. That was for free. You can just take that with you from Pastor Blake. The point is, is that Nehemiah's emotions have come to the surface and the king recognizes it. Now you think, okay, cool. What's the problem? It's a big problem, which is why verse 2 ends this way. I was overwhelmed with Fear. Why is Nehemiah afraid? Because it was against the law for the cupbearer to be sad in the presence of the king. And you say, why? why would that be a big deal? Well, if you were the king, you might understand because this is the guy who's supposed to keep you alive. So if he is emotionally unstable, you're going to begin to wonder things. You know, is he sad because he's guilty and he's poisoning me? Is he sad because there was poison in the wine that he tried and he's about to die? You know, what is going on with the cupbearer? It's kind of like I told you guys in week one, uh, I met a guy on a mission trip that I went on and uh, his job, he had one of the coolest jobs I'd ever heard of. He was uh, the guy who held the nuclear football for President George Bush, which is this, this briefcase that holds the nuclear codes that can literally destroy mankind. 
And his job, along with a couple other guys, was to stay by President George Bush at all times with this briefcase. And, uh, you know, when his shift ended, they would do this whole thing to pass it on to the next guy. But he had to be with him every breathing moment. So you can only imagine how important this guy was and what he heard. But I think we can all agree we want that guy to be emotionally stable. <laughs> like, it's okay for you to go to therapy. I go to therapy. It's okay for you to be on medicine for your mental health. I don't want the guy who has the nuclear football to be mentally unstable. Can we all agree on that? You know, He's not allowed to have a bad day. Well, the same is true for the cupbearer, for the king. He's not allowed to have a bad day. His job is too important. So he's at the risk of his life being sat before the king, and this is Nehemiah's moment. Is he going to brush it off, or is he going to take this opportunity to do what God has called him to do, to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel and to ask the king for the unthinkable? It says, may the king live forever. So he re- he's overwhelmed with fear and he replied to the king, may the king live forever. Flattery is always a good way to start. You know, it's like me when I was a kid. Try to butter your parents up a little bit before you make the big ask. Never worked for me as a kid, though, because you got kids. This is a tip for you. You got to do it when you're not asking for something, too. Because uh, if you just are flattering when you're asking for something, they know something's up. That's a free tip. May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad? When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then verse four, it says, then the king asked me, what is your request? This is an amazing part of God's providence. We believe that during this time, uh, the kings, King Artaxerxes specifically, had a tradition of granting anybody's request for certain periods. You could come to the king and he would grant your request. Well, this is what's happening here. Nehemiah is sad and he has this amazing opportunity. The king says, Okay, Nehemiah, you've seen all these other people come in with their requests. I see that you're sad. What is your request? And I love Nehemiah, what he does next year, because he doesn't request anything from the king. Not at first. Because he knows who the real king is. He knows where the real throne is. The real throne is not found on this earth. It's not the Oval Office, and it certainly is not King Artaxerxes. The real king is seated in heaven. So what does he do when the king says, what is your request? Well, he says, well, thanks for asking. I'm going to ask the real king before I ask you. So, so I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. The king with the queen seated beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time and it pleased the king to send me. Now that's got a double meaning, doesn't it? Which king sent Nehemiah? Well, on the one hand, we could say King Artaxerxes is the one who sent Nehemiah. But you and I, sitting on this side of uh, Nehemiah's time on earth, reading the, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, we know the real king who sent Nehemiah was the king who was in heaven. He sent his leader, Nehemiah, for the good of the people of God. See, the king was just a puppet in God's hands, as all kings and all leaders truly are. God will get done what he wants to get done, and he will use whatever means he needs to use. King Artaxerxes thinks he's being generous by sending Nehemiah, when in reality, the only reason he is sending Nehemiah is because God has sent Nehemiah. Now, I told you, Nehemiah was just a shadow of what was to come, and that is true. We see this play out with Jesus as well. We see Jesus being sent by God for our own good, and we see Jesus stand before a king who thinks he's in charge over Jesus. And Jesus says, you have no authority over me. You think you do, but you don't have authority over me. Look at John uh, chapter 19, and I'm going to start in verse 11. This is uh, as Jesus is standing trial for his crucifixion. 
Uh, he's standing before Pilate, the most powerful man in Jesus' kind of sphere. This guy has the power to say, either Jesus, you're crucified, or Jesus, you're not crucified. And uh, Pilate's trying to talk to him, and Jesus is not answering his questions, giving him the silent treatment. And uh, Pilate gets frustrated, and he says, don't you know that I have authority? Do you know who I am, Jesus? I'm kind of a big deal. And I love Jesus' response. Verse 11, he says, you would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you is the greater skin. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. Pilate knew that something was special about Jesus, and he did not want to be the one to kill Jesus. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. But when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called Stone Pavement. It was the preparation day for the Passover. It was about noon. Then he told the Jews, here's your king. They shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? And they said, we have no king but Caesar. Then he handed him, him being Jesus, over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away. And you might say, well, Blake, that turns out way different than Nehemiah. Nehemiah went for the risk of his life and God showed up. And so Nehemiah was blessed. Nehemiah was sent by the king. And you might think, well, Jesus came out of this kind of with a bad deal. But the truth is, no. Pilate was just as much a puppet in God's hand as Artaxerxes was. Jesus had a different mission. Jesus didn't come to risk his life. He came at the cost of his life for us. See, Pilate was not the one who authorized Jesus' death. Jesus was the one who authorized his death. Look at John chapter 10, verse 17. It says, this is Jesus speaking. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. They did not kill Jesus, friends. Jesus laid his life down. Jesus was doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. Just as Nehemiah was fulfilling his mission of leading the people and rebuilding the city, Jesus was doing a far greater mission of laying down his life so that you and I might be freed from the penalty of our sins and so that he might defeat sin, death, and Satan with the power of the gospel. There is no claim Satan has over us because the worst thing Satan can do to you and I is to kill us. And Jesus said, okay, we'll see how bad you are, Satan. I'll die and I'll defeat death. I mean, you know Jesus is tough if he goes and he kicks death's butt, which is exactly what he does. And by the way, as we read the book of Revelation, we know Jesus is coming back. And it says when he comes back, the last thing he's going to do is he's going to wage war on death. I don't care how cool you think you are. Jesus is cooler. This is his mission. See, Pilate thinks he's in charge, but he's not in charge. It's Jesus. And the gracious hand was on Jesus just as it was on Nehemiah. And we know the gracious hand of God was on Jesus. Why? Well, because he didn't stay dead, did he, friends? Three days later, he rose again, defeating death. This is our leader who was sent to us by Jesus. Now, as Nehemiah goes on, we'll go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 7. Nehemiah grows in his confidence because this is what happens when God shows up. He's fearful at the beginning, but what happens when we place our faith in God and then God shows up is we get more faith and we get more bold. And so Nehemiah sees this and he's really excited. So he, he shoots for the moon, man. He starts asking for everything. Uh, he, he says, basically, he says, I'm going to build a wall and you're going to pay for it. Now, you might have thought you heard that first from a certain presidential candidate, but <laughs> Nehemiah said it long before. If I had a good accent, uh, uh, you know, if I could do a Donald Trump impression, I would do it right here, but I can't. So 
Uh, it says this. Also, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph. Hey, while you're at it, king, let's also do this. Keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my request for the gracious hand of the king. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. For the gracious hand of my God was on me, just as Jesus is sent with the gracious hand of God on him. Now, through that leader, we are sent, which is exactly what we see in the rest of Nehemiah. This is where you and I get our kind of moment in the sun. Where, where are we, Blake? I, you know, Jesus, that's great, but what about me? Well, I would say, you know, you're not all that important, but I'll talk about you because the Bible does. So as we go into verse 9, we see that we are sent through the leader sent by God. Verse 9 says, I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. Everything is going so good. And guys, when things are going so good, you know what's around the corner? Something not so good. If things seem too good to be true, guess what? They're probably too good to be true. So, of course, verse 10, what do we have? We have the bad guys. They sound bad, too. Look, look at this. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, doesn't it just sound like a bad guy in a movie? I don't know. Maybe that's just the way my ADHD brain reads it, but... Go along with it. When, when these, this Horonite and this Ammonite, almost sounds like a cuss word, uh, official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. And this always happens. When a leader comes to pursue the good of God's people, the leaders of the world will be greatly displeased. And you know why? Because it threatens their kingdoms. God's kingdom is vastly different from the world's kingdoms. The world's kingdoms say the first are the greatest. Jesus says, no, the least are the greatest. It is in a direct opposition of the way the world works. This is exactly what happened to Jesus. If we look at John chapter 11, verse 47 and 48, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened at the Sanhedrin. And this, by the way, is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, if I'm a Jewish leader, I think it's pretty cool we got somebody who can raise people from the dead. Like, I want to be on that guy's team. But no, they are displeased at this. It says, so the Pharisees convened and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? If we let, let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Oh, the horror that everyone would believe in Jesus. And this is really the motivation. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You want to know why the world hates the acts of Jesus and why they hated the acts of Nehemiah? Because everything we stand for is opposed to what they stand for. It is a threat to their little tiny kingdoms and they try to hold on to them and hoard them. And Jesus comes and he says, no, I'm going to overturn those kingdoms. So we find people displeased. So we come into verse 11. Uh, Nehemiah is not bothered by it. We'll see that the Horonite and the Ammonite show back up at the end of the text. But verse 11 says, after I arrived, I being Nehemiah in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anyone what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the scepter's well and the dung gate. Which, man, they need somebody to name their gates a little better. At the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but further down... It became too narrow for my animals to go through. So I went up at night by the way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. 
The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who would be doing the work. Why not? Because he's the leader. He's planning. He's preparing before he goes out and says anything. This is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus. Often Jesus does things that make no sense to us, like he takes a nap or you know, he's preaching and he goes away and he goes to a quiet place because he's not in a hurry. You know why he's not in a hurry? Because he knows what God has called him to do and he's confident in God's great hand on his life. This is exactly what we see in Nehemiah. But it's time to rally the troops now. So in verse 17, we see, So I said to them, Nehemiah is speaking, You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. And by the way, Jesus would say to us that the trouble is far bigger than just Jerusalem. See, in the new covenant, Jesus is not just worried about Jerusalem. He certainly is, but he's worried about the whole earth. All of the earth and all that inhabits it is Jesus. And Jesus wants to restore and redeem all of it. The gospel is cosmic. It's not about you simply going to a place called heaven to get out of here. No, it's about Jesus coming to earth and restoring all of it. You and I included. And Jesus would look at us and he'd say, you see how bad it is. I don't have to tell you. Just watch the evening news and you'll see how bad the earth is. I hear bad news every single day about stuff I can't even imagine. You know, I I hear about things going on in Afghanistan this week about how the Taliban is literally starving some of the people there. And and how blessed I feel often, and I take for granted just the most basic things, that I can go to the grocery store and buy food, and my wife's not going to be murdered if she shows her face in public. There is horrible things all around us. And Jesus would say, you guys see it. I don't have to tell you. Just open your eyes and look around. But then he says this, verse 18. This is Nehemiah. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me, and what the king had said to me. And that's all he says. He doesn't tell them what to do. Notice that. He said, I just told them how the gracious hand of my God was on me. And they get so overwhelmed with joy about what God had done in Nehemiah's life. You mean you stood up to King Artaxerxes and he gave you all of that? And Nehemiah says, yeah, that, he gave me all of that. And look at what the Jews say by themselves. Verse 19, uh, sorry, verse uh, 18. It says, I told them what the gracious hand of my God had been doing on me, what the king had said to me. And they said, let's start rebuilding And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. Friends, that's what ought to happen when we hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. When we hear about how good Jesus has been to us and what God has done for Jesus through his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension to heaven, we should shout, let's start rebuilding. We got this much power on our side. Are you kidding me? Nothing can stop us as the church because we've got God's gracious hand on us. And here in Nehemiah says they were strengthened by the hand of the Lord. Well, friends, we have an even better strengthening, something that the ancient Israelites couldn't even fully comprehend. And that is God literally residing in us through his Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that lived in Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. That same power is in Blake Farley and it's in you and it's in this church that should blow our minds. You know, some, some of you guys look like it's not all that mind-blowing, and I get it. It's one of the hardest things I have as a preacher to try to get across to you how amazing this thing is. And yet, you and I are the same. Our eyes are veiled by the things of this world. It is so hard. Like, for instance, uh, I heard John Piper use this illustration, and I liked it. He talks about, you know, if Bill Gates were to say, you know what, Blake, uh, I want to give money to your church. Here's a $2 million check for you to give to somebody. If I said, I'm about to give away a $2 million check, all of your eyes would lighten up. I mean, just immediately. You'd say, okay, Blake, I, I think I need blessed from God. You guys would start fighting. You'd get excited. I invite you up here. I give you the $2 million. You're going to worship. You say, I don't really sing or raise my hand. Oh, no, you're going to worship. You got $2 million. And what I want you to understand is the power of God is infinitely 100 times 100 times 100 times better than $2 million. 
And yet there's something in me and there's something in you that makes it hard for us to grasp this. And yet this is what we have on our side, friends. And it is amazing that we have this. We, we go to the New Testament uh, and, and we see this because, uh, well, first, let me finish up verse 20, verse 19. I got so excited. I was ready to skip to the next part. Verse 19. Again, what did I say? When, when things seem like they're going good, guess what you can expect around the corner? Trouble. And that's exactly what happens. We see the horror night show back up. Jerk. Verse 19, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, they got a new friend. You know, they went and gossiped and got Geshem involved. None of your business, Geshem. Geshem the Arab. Heard about this. They mocked and despised us and said, what is this you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They begin to threaten the followers of Nehemiah. See, at the beginning it was just Nehemiah, but now they're threatening us. Well, friends, this points us forward to the New Testament yet again. See, if they threatened and they didn't like Jesus, guess what? They're not going to like you and I. This is exactly what Jesus says. John chapter 15, verse 18 through 25. Jesus says, If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Uh, Basically, what he's saying is it'd be kind of like if you went to a Joe Biden rally wearing a Donald Trump hat. My guess is you wouldn't be welcomed, you know, and vice versa. You know, if you wore a Joe Biden hat, I don't even know if they have Joe Biden hats, but if they had a Joe Biden hat and you wore it and you went to a Donald Trump rally, you probably wouldn't be all that welcomed. And what Jesus is saying is it's when you're a follower of me, you're living in this world that hates you. Jesus was very good at uniting people uh, for good and for evil. So for good, you know, that's us as the church. Really, there's not a lot a lot of us have in common. If it wasn't for Jesus, a lot of us wouldn't be here in the same room. You know, the the church is made up of rich people and poor people, black people and white people, smart people and not so smart people. There's all sorts of people that make up the church. And the only thing that keeps us all together is what? We all love Jesus. That's what binds us together. That's what ought to bind us together. You know, when churches lose that, that's when churches die. When what binds us together is ugly red carpet. Well, then when it's ugly and we don't like it anymore, we begin to fight. But when what binds us together is Jesus, well, then we are we are unbeatable. We're unified. But the same is true for the world. You know what Jesus was really good at doing? He made people who did not even like each other work together. Because they're like, you know what? We all have a problem with Jesus. So he had the Romans. He had the Pharisees. He had the Sadducees. He had all these people who normally hated each other working together to kill him. Because he can unify people against him. Because Jesus makes us all feel like aliens. There's no political party that fully fits the Christian worldview. There's no political leader who is Jesus in flesh. So if we're following Jesus, then guess what happens? We find ourselves at odds. At times we find ourselves as exiles, which is exactly where the Israelites are. But Jesus gives us good news. And the good news Jesus gives us is he says, I am with you. And you can look at my example and you can know that the hand of God is on me. And it's on you as well. That same hand that strengthened me strengthens you. And this should give us a lot of faith as Christians. We will find struggles. There will be times when things are going really good. But guess what you can always expect around the corner? You will find problems. And you might say, Blake, why would God allow there to be problems if we're trying to do His will? I mean, I'm trying to raise my kids in a godly way, and it seems like every time I do something that is good, that God would like, some kind of problem pops up. You know, they get a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend, and it's like they listen to them more than they listen to me. You know, whatever it might be, you're trying to do something good for God, and it's like, God, it'd be nice if you had a little bit of help here. You know, you're so gracious to me at times, but then at other times, it's like, where are you? And the truth is, is the reason why God allows obstacles in our life is because God is more interested in building us than he is in building temples. In other words, Nehemiah just wants to get this thing finished. 
But God wants to do something in Nehemiah. The Israelites want to work and, and build the city back and build the walls. But God wants to do something in the people of Israel. See, and the same is true for us. God is forming us in ways we cannot fully understand. I'll close with this. Uh, and Zach, you guys can go ahead and come back up. But I was thinking this week, uh, I'm preparing to preach on Ephesians next in 2023. And uh, I don't know, we might be there till the Lord comes back. It's just, it's just really rich. I don't, like, I don't even know how I'm going to narrow it all down. Uh, so I started studying early on it. And one of the huge themes that the Apostle Paul has is that we are, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. And I just, I've been thinking this week and praying, God, how do, I, you know, how do I use an analogy? What that even means that we're in Christ Jesus? And I think I thought of some good ones. We'll hear, hear about them later. Uh, but one of the ones I thought of, and it hit me this week as I was working on this sermon too, is that being in Christ is, and it's probably because I'm about to be a dad, but, but it's, it's like a fetus inside of the mother. You know, that, that's the kind of idea of what it means to be in Christ. That wherever Christ goes, we goes. We goes. <laughs> when I was saying earlier, the smart people and not smart people, the guy with the microphone probably falls into the other category. Uh, but where, wherever Taylor goes, there goes Blakely. You know, whatever Taylor eats, that's what Blakely eats, for good or for bad. We went to Florida for vacation this summer. Blakely had no say in it. She went to Florida because Taylor went to Florida. And uh, the same is true as we're in Christ. Whatever is true of Christ is true of us because we are in him. Everything we get is from him. But I was thinking this week about how it relates to this idea of God sending us and equipping us and sometimes and not making sense to us because he's forming us. And the truth is, is Blakely is very uncomfortable right now. And you say, how do you know she's uncomfortable? Well, because we went and got a sonogram uh, at 27 weeks. We got a sonogram and she looked like she was having the time of her life just floating in an ambiotic bath, you know, and, and it's like I don't even want to disturb her because the world's hard and cold and she looks so pleasant right now. Well, we went to this last one, and uh, she is so stuffed in the wound that literally when they put the thing there, her nose looked like it was scrunched up on a, on a window. And she did not look pretty at all. The first time she looked like her mom. The second time she looked like an alien. So I'm, I'm praying that it's just because she's really scrunched in there and really uncomfortable. And Taylor tells me she's uncomfortable because she keeps kicking Taylor. You know, she, she, you know people who say that uh, fetuses don't have their own mind or their own will obviously have never been pregnant. Because Blakely does what Blakely wants. From the womb she is in sin, making her mother's life uh, impossible at times, you know. And uh, if I could talk to Blakely and she could understand me, she, obviously she can't. But if I could say, hey, it is so great out here. It's awesome. You're going to have all of this space. You're going to see things. You've never seen things. Things you and I take for granted, she's going to see for the first time. I love looking at a baby who's for the first time beginning to see things. Like the grass is green. The air is fresh. That's my mom and that's my dad. He's kind of scary. You know? She's going she's to have all this amazing blessings. And I can imagine if she could talk to me, she would say, well, then why won't you take me out of here, you jerk? <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. I'm cramped up. And I could. You know, we could go to the hospital, get a C-section. She could be out. She'd be fine today. But I'd be a bad dad if I didn't let her fully form. I want her to stay in there, even though it's uncomfortable, for as long as she can so that she can enjoy what is coming next fully. She needs to stay until it is time for her to come out. And I could try to explain it to her, but it would do no good. You know, it's like trying to explain a 401k to a toddler. You could try, but it's just not going to work. And we wonder why God doesn't give us answers sometimes. God, why did this happen or why isn't this happening? And the truth is, it'd be the same thing. If your Heavenly Father even tried to explain it to you, your tiny little brain wouldn't even be able to understand it. So you know what God calls us to do? He says, trust me. Trust that I am forming you for something so far beyond your imagination that you can't even fathom it. I know you don't understand what's going on. It doesn't look like the right things are going on right now, but you've got to trust me. I'm doing something in you so that I can do something through you. Friends, let me pray for you. Father God, thank you so much. 
that you have sent us. You've sent us to be lights in this dark world because you sent Jesus, our leader, who leads us. And God, thank you that you didn't just send us, but you equipped us. You've strengthened our hands to the power of your Holy Spirit. And God, at times we find struggles and we find problems, but I pray, God, that you would help us see that those problems and those struggles and those times of waiting are not really times of you being hidden or you being silent, but they're times of you forming us into who you want us to be. God, we love you and we praise you. Friends, if you would take 20 seconds, eyes closed, head bowed, and just say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? Father God, I pray that you'd give us the courage through your Holy Spirit to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing to the King. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.